I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Tim Westergren, founder of the internet radio company Pandora. Pandora personalizes the radio experience for listeners by playing songs that sound similar to the artist or song that a listener enters on their computer, iPhone, or in the car. Tim started Pandora in 2000, and the company made its first profit 10 years later at the end of 2009. Pandora went public in June 2011. Pandora is based on the Music Genome Project, a system that analyzes each song based on approximately 400 musical attributes, including harmony, instruments, or the nature of the artist's voice. Pandora has a team of musicologists who interpret each song and populate listeners' personalized radio stations with songs that they might like. Tim is a jazz pianist who has also played the clarinet, drums, and bassoon. Tim played in rock bands and composed music for movies prior to starting Pandora. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You graduated from Stanford in 1988, and for the next 12 years, you had a career as a musician. What were your aspirations fresh out of college? Well, I wanted to be a rock star. That was my uh, dream when I graduated. I didn't really know how I was going to get there, but I really left college with a real passion for music. So even though you were trained as a jazz pianist, you wanted to be a rock star. Yeah, jazz was really how I learned sort of harmony and theory and the piano. Uh, But as a composer and as a performer, my passion has always been for sort of rock pop music. And who were some of your favorite, you know, rock artists whom you wish to emulate or become? Well, it's changed over time. It's certainly the Beatles are my taproot. I, I I love just about everything they've done, and, and they've been a real inspiration for me. Um, I was a big Steely Dan fan for mm-hmm. a long time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I like everything from you know Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder to uh, Fleetwood Mac to Ben Folds, Oscar Peterson's my favorite uh, jazz musician. Uh, a pretty broad range of things. Did you come from a house filled with music? I, I came from a house full of tone-deaf people, uh, <laughs> so not a lot of uh, musical background around me. So how did your parents go about introducing you to the piano? Well, it was pretty simple. I, I actually was living in France at the time, and um, I was interested in music. I, I, I took to it in school, and they just bought a piano for me. And uh, I took some lessons from a blues pianist uh, in Paris, and I really just took to it and started kind of teaching myself. You had a nomadic childhood. You lived in France for a little while. Where else did you live, and what brought you to these places? Yeah, well, I moved to France when I was six. I lived there till I was 12, and then we moved to England, uh, where I lived for four years, then went back to school in Michigan for a couple years before heading to California for college. And uh, we moved because my dad was a businessman who... Uh, uh, worked mostly in North Africa and the Middle East and was always headquartered in Europe. He was in uh, foods and pharmaceuticals. You had this aspiration to become a rock star. What did you do logistically when you graduated from Stanford? Well, the first couple of years, I actually really woodshed it as a piano player. I played piano six, seven hours a day, uh, really trying to hone my, my performing skills and kind of gradually segued into uh, playing with groups. Uh, so I was always a composer. I, I, I was always writing music, but I, I began kind of in my mid-20s playing live and eventually, I think, poured most of my energy into into bands, uh, began to tour, uh, did recordings, um, and really kind of lived out of a van for a while, did the whole sort of independent working musicians thing. It, it was certainly not something a lot of my friends and peers were doing. 
I think it was uh, it was exciting uh, and fun and interesting. But I think as the years went by, you certainly develop a growing a growing sort of apprehension about about whether it's going to lead anywhere. And certainly, graduating from Stanford, you could have become a consultant. <laughs> yeah, it's this. This was not the most common career choice for my my uh, fellow graduates, for sure. And that lasted, gosh, until I was about thirty. And then I kind of grew tired of of the band dynamics, the the sort of logistics of being one of many in a band, and became a film composer for a while. How did you support yourself during this time? Did you make enough money composing these these films or commercials? I just about made a living doing that. Um, I had a series of odd jobs in my 20s. I was a nanny for a while. I worked in administration at a medical school, a bunch of kind of very typical sort of musician gigs. Um, I, was, I don't, I I don't played... think a nanny is a traditional uh, musician <laughs> gig for a guy. <laughs> That's true. It's not atypical for, for a musician. I think a lot of people are involved in that. But uh, I did. I, I even played piano you know, in hotel lobbies and things like that. The idea for the Music Genome Project, which really is the infrastructure for Pandora, came out of your work as a composer for film. Can you describe that a little bit? So there were really two inspirations for the genome. The genome itself definitely came from my experience as a film composer. And and what happens when you're a film composer is your job is sort of twofold. One is to really... uh, be able to craft music for a certain effect, so to support picture, a scene or an emotion, a mood, whatnot. That's number one. And number two is to satisfy a director. So I got very accustomed to thinking about music and music taste in terms of musical attributes, which I think is something we all do to a greater or lesser degree. And and one day I had this idea because I'd gotten pretty good at figuring out what a director wanted. I actually would put them through kind of this musical interview, hmm. sort of the equivalent of a musical Myers-Briggs test, where I would play music for them and get their feedback and, and kind of glean from their answers what they wanted. And I realized that what I was doing was this genome uh, in my head. And the idea just popped into my brain one day that, gosh, if I could codify this, write this all down, there might be a way for technology to marry it to, with technology to build a recommendation technology. Incidentally, when was the Human Genome Project? Was it around this this time in 2000? Well, in, I, I did some work actually at Stanford in the medical school for a while, and there was a, there was a lot of uh, work being done on the human genome, so that was in my head too. Uh, but it was probably five years old at that point maybe. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Tim Westergren, founder of the internet radio company Pandora. At what point did this become more than just an intellectual idea where you said, you know what, I think I might have a business here? Well, I, I, the idea percolated in my head for a few months. Uh, my wife was very supportive of it. And, and then one day what happened was I shared the idea with a friend of mine who had already had sort of a successful entrepreneurial experience. And his name was John Kraft. And, and so he, he said, you know, why don't we just go ahead and do it? Let's just do it. Uh, and it sort of happened suddenly after that. What part of your shift was the acknowledgement that you were not trending towards becoming, you know, John Williams, the famous, uh, mm-hmm. you know, film composer um, versus, you know what, I'm really psyched about this project and I'm going to take agency and make it happen? Well, I was making sort of slow and steady progress as a film composer. Uh, but like I think virtually every musical profession, 
it's very hard to know if you're headed towards a good, healthy, long-term career or not. And you know, you spend most of your time really grinding away, trying to build your business, and and you kind of take two steps forward, one step back. I was encouraged by where it was going, but I didn't, I did, didn't sort of see an obvious path to a career there. But I think what really caused me to to make this shift was kind of uh, a few things. One, I really thought the idea was a good one. Uh, and there was, at the time, a tremendous amount of excitement uh, and energy on the web in the music space. And it held this incredible promise for, you know, for changing the music industry and this idea fit right into it. And the second thing was, there were, I was living in the Bay Area, so I was surrounded by this kind of almost you know, irrational exuberance for entrepreneurship. So many people were starting businesses and, and there was so much investment capital around looking to fund these businesses that it was one of those windows where you know, if you were ever going to do it, that was the time. Can you sum up what the Music Genome Project is? So the genome itself is a musical taxonomy. So it's a, it's a collection of attributes and there are about 400 that collectively describe a song. So every dimension of a, a recording, whether it's melody, harmony, rhythm, form, instrumentation, the vocal performance, etc., each one of those aspects uh, is broken down into a collection of attributes, kind of like musical primary colors. Mm-hmm. So the voice has about 15 attributes just dedicated to understanding what the voice sounds like. And the idea is that you can describe just about any piece of music along the same set of attributes by just giving them different scores. It's like musical DNA. It's, it's people, not computers, who are kind of behind the Music Genome Project, who are looking at a piece of music and taking 20 minutes per song and analyzing it. What was your thought behind using people versus, let's say, computers to make it happen? <laughs> yeah. That's a good question, and, and it was our single biggest liability when we started because everybody thought this was completely insane, that we'd have a team of people analyzing songs. And you're right, it can take upwards of 15, 20 minutes, as much as an hour and a half in the case of a symphony, to complete an analysis. And the reason we did it that way was that's really the only way to do it. Uh, machines don't have the capability of extracting that kind of data from a sound file. And the other uh, methods for you know, connecting songs didn't solve what was for me the most important problem, which was how to surface the stuff you've never heard before. And and that's kind of where the my first experience as a performer came into play, because I was really interested in, in, in finding a way for technology to help the sort of working musician, you know, the person who wasn't on a radio and, and didn't have a record deal. And and the beauty of the genome is that it's completely blind to popularity. Mm-hmm. So we're just as adept at recommending a song from a garage band as we are from a hit artist. I also feel like having people involved gives the the Music Genome Project some heart or some subjective mm-hmm. judgment mm-hmm. in a way that, uh, you know, just having 400 criteria doesn't sound very, you know, warm and fuzzy. Well, you know, we actually think about Pandora literally inside the company as a human being trying to figure out what you want and converse with you the same way a friend would, you know, that, that friend we all hope we have who, is, who knows your music taste and, and has this encyclopedic knowledge of music. What is the background of the, the musicologists or the people, you know, behind the scenes who, suggesting the music? 
So they're they're all trained musicians. You need to have at least an undergraduate degree in music theory or equivalent to do this kind of analysis. Many of them have advanced degrees, and and they're all essentially working musicians. This is their day job. They're they're in bands. Many of them teach. Uh, you know, they perform. There are pianists and drummers and guitarists and people who play washboard and singers and, you know, everything in between. It's kind of akin to the slow food movement where it does take more time <laughs> to to collect data for each song. And you might have fewer songs in your library versus, you know, some of your competitors. I, I like that, uh, that, that metaphor. This, it's, the, it's the slow food of music. I yeah. like that. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Tim Westergren, founder of the internet radio company Pandora. The company went public in June 2011. We'll hear more from Tim coming up. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. My guest is Tim Westergren, founder of the internet radio company Pandora. Pandora personalizes the radio experience for listeners by playing songs that sound similar to the artist or song that a listener enters on their computer, iPhone, or in the car. Tim started Pandora in 2000, and the company made its first profit 10 years later at the end of 2009. Pandora went public in June 2011. Tim is a jazz pianist who also has played the clarinet, drums, and bassoon. Tim played in rock bands and composed music for movies prior to starting Pandora. You mentioned before how capital was coming easily uh, to entrepreneurs in the Bay Area, and that was one of the impetuses for, you know, maybe starting your own company, that the culture felt right. How easily did did capital come to you when you were first launching Pandora? So the, the, the first round of financing came relatively quickly uh, from a small group of angel investors. Uh, it was about a million and a half dollars that got us off the ground, and, and that lasted about a year, and then it got awfully tough. Uh, we spent a number of years unable to raise money and spent a good part of that working for free and had to kind of hang on uh, until the sort of the valley uh, you know, rose again in 2004 to raise a big round of investment. It wasn't until 2004 when Larry Marcus, who was at Walden Ventures, uh, they invested $9 million in Pandora. Is there a story of that first meeting? Yeah, well, Larry was certainly my, my knight in shining armor. Uh, he, he actually had been following our company for a number of years, had seen us uh, several times. And I think he's a drummer, a musician, and someone who's got a real passion for music and the sort of digital music arena. He's, he's an investor who, who has long wanted to be part of this space. I think he liked the idea, and he believed that the Music Genome Project w- was going to have its, have its day. And I think he also appreciated the tenacity of the team. How different was the company that you started? How different is it from the company that it's become? I mean, some things have changed, like, uh, you know, you started out uh, with a subscription-based revenue model. Now mm-hmm. you make most of your capital from advertising, for example. What were some other changes Maybe. Yeah, well, I think that it, this company is is kind of a combination of very much the same company it was when it started. I think you know the core of Pandora remains the Music Genome Project and the mission of the company, which is to help people discover music and to help bands find their audiences, has really not changed since the beginning. The front end of that mission has changed dramatically, of course. We went from being sort of a technology provider in the early years including building kiosks for record stores uh, into a consumer-facing website. And as you said, we started briefly as a subscription 
business only, and then within a matter of weeks uh, offered a free version of Pandora. There, there remains a subscription option as well. But we now look at this business as being about free advertising support to consumers. Your name also changed. You were you were Savage Beast Technologies. Where'd that come from? <laughs> it, it, it comes from a Frost poem, Music Hath, or William Congreve poem, Music Hath Charms to Soothe the Savage Beast. It's well, actually to soothe the savage breast. It was just a misspelling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would have had different implications for the company. How did you ultimately d- decide on Pandora? Well, the the name, the idea came from our CEO, Joe uh, Kennedy. And we had been through kind of a, a very typical process of tr- trying to find a name for the, the company. And when he suggested that name, it was one of those those moments when we all said, that just sounds perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the story of Pandora is about this box that, you know, she she's so curious, she can't help but open. Uh, and it's full of surprises. Granted, not the kind of surprises we're trying to provide people, but... Uh, we love that she is insatiably curious and that you don't know what's going to come out of the box when you open it. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Tim Westergren, founder of the internet radio company Pandora. I want to switch gears a little bit. Songs on Pandora are suggested by um, not so much the wisdom of crowds or what the crowd thinks or what's po- most popular, but by the actual physical construct of a song. Why are why are you so opposed to you know what's kind of popular these days? You know the wisdom of crowds and the community having a word in um, helping to form musical preferences. So I wouldn't say that I'm opposed to it. And we actually do use our own version of collaborative filtering or kind of wisdom of the crowds in the way we interpret the thumbs up and thumbs down that people give us. Uh-huh. So when you thumb up a, or thumb down a song on Pandora, it curates your station in real time just for you. But we also collect the aggregate thumbs up and thumbs down for every song, for every station on which it plays. And we actually do use that now to help us shape stations. So. Okay. It is a piece of the puzzle, but uh, I think the the harder question around you know why we why we approach this uh, from the music genome product standpoint is that you know, it's just the it's the one system that can really effectively surface stuff that you've never heard of before that has no purchasing history or or preference history that 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 a collaborative filtering engine just can't uh, grapple with, mm-hmm. and that to me. Has, is the seminal problem of music. It always has been. It's, and it's, a, it's the problem for artists as well. And, and, and I was in and among these working musicians for a long time. And the problem is, you know, how do you, how do you sort of um, get noticed? And, and the idea behind the genome product was it would be the one place that was truly a level playing field where when you came into Pandora, once you were on the system, your chance of playing was really about your sound and nothing to do with how popular you were. You do allow uh, musicians who are not necessarily recognized by the public or don't have record labels to upload their their music and to be offered on Pandora. You know, we encourage it. Uh, it's it's there. The, the only prerequisite there are two prerequisites for playing on Pandora. One is that your music is good, and that's an editorial decision that we make. And the second one is it has to be available for sale on Amazon, uh, and that's a function of of kind of how we track. Uh, content on Pandora through UPC codes, etc. But really, anybody can submit their music and you do it online through a digital process. It all gets listened to and we pick the best stuff, regardless of, you know, 
is the band young or old or successful or not or on a label or not or cool or not you know that's just not a factor and so you'll never see pandora you know cop an attitude about music and I, and i think you know partly that comes from you know our own musical background you know, as a musician myself i know how hard it is to write good music no matter what kind so i have a real respect for for just you know just about anything uh, whether it's the most the most kind of packaged uh, pop tune or some very very uh, atonal modern classical music I have a sense of what goes into it, and I think we have a profound respect for that. Pandora may not have an attitude about you know about music, but certainly your listeners do. Uh, do you have an example of some criticism that your listeners might have offered you because you you're not part of this popularity contest? We do get periodic uh, objections from people about music that we play on their stations, for sure. Uh, some people get very offended when we select certain artists and pair them with artists that they love and, and they feel somehow insulted because they think that suggestion uh, is uncool. What's an example? Uh, well, the, my favorite one is an example I got from someone who had who had heard a Celine Dion song on a Sarah McLachlan station, I, I will never forget, who was very upset about it and and felt that it was just, you know, very uncool for us to, to, to pair those two. Uh but after some back and forth, they kind of really looked past the sort of cultural label and realized, well, you know, musically it kind of makes sense and I like it. Uh, it took a while for them to, to acknowledge that, but it was a really a happy ending. As a musician, nothing drives me crazier than music snobbery. You know, mm-hmm. I, it's hard enough as it is for musicians to make a living. And the last thing that they need on top of everything is to, is to deal with you know, people who think once they've got some degree of commercial success, they've somehow sold out and aren't worthy anymore. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Tim Westergren, founder of the internet radio company Pandora. The company didn't make a profit until almost 2010. Can you talk to me about sort of the psychology of somebody who's working for 10 years and not making any money? And I <laughs> it's know it's pretty damaged. <laughs> uh, it's tired. <laughs> psychology is. Uh, you know, I think that we had an incredible group of employees. I mean, really a remarkable group, both in terms of their their sort of skills and talent, and also their tenacity and loyalty to the project. And and I think that people never stopped believing in the basic idea. I think everyone who saw the music genome in operation and, and, and got to kind of play with the demo we had built thought it was really uh, powerful mm-hmm. and that we just had lousy timing yeah. and needed to hang on long enough for it to see its day, which I think has, you know, has borne out. Uh, but I think that when you go that long in such adversity, you know, there are a whole bunch of things that come into play, and, and probably more than anything, it's it's a sense of camaraderie and loyalty to each other uh, as much as anything that, that keeps you going. Is there a loneliness at all, especially being, uh, you know, the founder? Yeah, probably the most challenging part of it is you don't know if and when it's going to ever end. And, you know, you're, you're, you're climbing a hill, but you just can never see the top, and you have no idea where it is. Uh, and that's that can be very discouraging. But I think when you're, uh, if you're one of the leaders of that mission, you just don't have the choice. You know, you you need to lead by example. You need to to uh, stay positive and and respect 
the kind of sacrifice that people ha- around you have made on your urging yeah. <laughs> um, for so long. So you don't, in some ways, you don't really have the luxury of, of, of uh, you know, dwelling on the downside. Were there ever points in that 10-year period where you thought of doing something else? Not really. I mean, there were many times when I was, you know, very afraid that this was all going to wind up as a big smoking hole in the ground um, and that a lot of people were going to be let down. I had that. I lived with that fear for a long time, but uh, never, never uh, thought I'd just stop. And you had an experience uh, in 2007 where you were on the verge of bankruptcy, but it did confirm the loyalty of your listeners when royalty rates for playing songs increased. I think it was by the Federal Royalty Board. Uh, and with the help of a lobby- lobbyist, you really got your users on board to write letters to Congress to have the prices lowered. Talk to me a little bit about the details of that experience. Yeah, so so we went through this period of time where uh, a, a ruling from the Copyright Royalty Board, which is part of the Copyright Office in Washington, essentially broke our business and, and broke business for internet radio, period. And in, in order to, to sort of solve that, we turned to our listeners and organized a grassroots political campaign. It was essentially asking people to call their member of Congress and, and uh, object, you know, protest this and demand some kind of relief. And, and it was an incredible, incredible outpouring of support. It, it, was, it was so large and so constant that Congress actually intervened to help solve the problem, which is a really rare thing. Despite the fact that you weren't earning significant revenue or making a profit in those 10 years, you had fierce loyalty among your employees. What's an example of that? Years ago, when we were, when we were in uh, some of our lowest of lows, one of our engineers who had been with us for you know, a number of years and had been you know, working without salary for a long time, uh, came up to Will, our then CTO, and said, you know, I can't come to work tomorrow. I can't afford the BART ride into work. I just literally have no money left. And uh, Will gave him 20 bucks <laughs> so that he'd come in another day. Uh, I think he, he wound up figuring out a way to keep working, but we were, we were scraping the bottom of the barrel for a while. Pandora had a turning point in 2008 when with the iPhone, and the number of users increased to 35,000 users a day because there was a Pandora app offered on the iPhone um, even though you had played a role in in, uh, in in setting this up, were you yourself surprised by the meteoric rise of adoption? Yeah, I think we were all pretty taken aback by the velocity of that, of the mobile growth, which continues unabated now. I think there were two parts of it that surprised us and pleased us. One was just the raw increase in growth, and it almost doubled our growth rate overnight. But I think probably more importantly... It redefined our category because people began taking these devices, these mobile devices, and listening to Pandora in lots of places other than the office, which is where we had principally been listened to. So, you know, they they take it to the gym or plug it into their car dashboard or or dock it at home and stream Pandora through their stereo system. And so it was almost like overnight we went from being a sort of an at-work desktop you know, computer radio product to something more akin to radio writ large, and and we were available anytime, anywhere, and that really is the story of Pandora right now. I mean, we are we are a seven day a week, twenty four hour a day habit. 
now Pandora is enjoying a successful period after 10 years of really a forced march. Um, how does it feel for you? Like, do you, do you have an example of, of, of what that feels like? Yeah, so I, I, I uh, frequently have sort of out-of-body experiences now where uh, ha- having been, you know, in such, uh, in such a troubled times for so long, I, I often sort of pinch myself, and, and that happens to me fairly frequently now. Uh, one in particular, I, I was at a, uh, an event where uh, we were being, Joe and I were being um, hosted by a Wall Street investment bank who was looking to, to win our business so that they could facilitate a big financing round that we were doing. So we were being courted by investors, essentially. And, and I was at this very fancy event in Las Vegas and sitting next to this buffet table holding a truffle-infused Kobe beef burger <laughs> and a very expensive glass of red wine, wondering, you know, what the hell I was doing here. And it was like 11 o'clock at night. And, and I remember thinking that the clock was going to strike 12 and something weird was going to happen. I was going to wind up you know, holding a Coke and a Big Mac or being, being back, uh, you know, back at home sweating over the company's future. Uh, and I really did sometimes wonder if I was in a dream, was going to wake up. Um, that happens a lot. You are running a multi-million dollar business now. How much interaction do you have with your listeners? So we actually decided from day one that we were going to take op- take advantage of every opportunity to converse with people that were using Pandora, no matter what they had to say, whether it was a critique or a love letter and everything in between. And so we literally answer every single email that we get, and we get tens of thousands of them every month. And we have a team of people whose only job is just to do that. So we talk all the time with listeners. What's the nature of some of those emails? The emails range from you know, constructive criticism about the website to personal stories about uh, having a baby born to Pandora or, you know, someone who runs a funeral parlor and uses Pandora as a soundtrack or, uh, you know, bands people have discovered and gone to see or, you know, um, ways they think we should improve the site. It's it's this whole, this incredible litany of, of advice, anecdotes, uh, criticisms, hate mail, uh, love letters. People send us brownies. People write music for us. Uh, it's, it's incredible. A listener wrote in uh, recently her, her, her um, father had just passed away. And, and in, in the uh, sort of waning months of his life, when he was at the hospital, they had discovered Pandora and, 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 and had um, introduced him to it, and, and it had apparently provided him a, a, a great amount of sort of relief and joy, you know, uh, in the final months of his life. And he, and he passed away listening to Pandora. And uh, the listener wrote in just to sort of say thank you and to tell us what about this and, and how much it meant to her. And, and you know, because we know, you know, when someone dies, a hospital can give you the time of death. They actually were able, we were able to figure out what song was playing when he died. And, and we sent, we let her know who, what that was and, and sent her a CD of it. And, and she played it at his, uh, at his funeral. That was a pretty humbling exchange to have with someone. But it's, you know, music is just such this powerful thing. What was the song? I think it was Vivaldi. And to go look it up. I think it was Vivaldi. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's my distinct pleasure. My guest has been Tim Westergren, founder of Pandora. Coming up, we'll meet Bridge Kathari, founder of Planet Read. 
I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch.